Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Vista. It is good to see you here. If it's your first time and we haven't met, my name is Austin Fisher. I am one of our lead pastors. If you're brand new, we're especially glad that you joined us. We hope that you feel loved, welcomed, and wanted. Uh, if you're a member here or you consider the Vista your home, we always want to remind you about our discipleship pathway. That's a set of five actions we ask all members and regular attenders to do because they'll help you follow Jesus. Following Jesus is hard, but it's also really, really simple. We can make it complicated, but it's really pretty simple. And so we ask you to worship, to connect, to give, to serve, and to go. Do you want a little bit of help with that today? We've got a next steps area out in the commons. We've got a staff member, a volunteer out there who would love to help you find a small group, find a place to serve at our church. Whatever you need to do, we've got people who would love to help you do that. Now today, we are in the third week of our summer series called She Speaks, and it's a series where we're going to scripture and listening to some of the stories of the women that we find there. And if you are at all familiar with the Bible, or even just grew up in kind of a Christian culture as most of us did, then you've probably noticed that the Bible can feel like an overwhelmingly masculine book. Right, man, it, it can feel like a book that was written by men and primarily for men about men. For example, uh, with the possible exception of the letter to the Hebrews, we're not sure who wrote that, could have been a woman, every other book of the Bible was written by a man. And it should probably come as no surprise that this collection of books and stories that were written primarily almost only by men are also mostly about men. For example, in 2014, this study was done and examined all of the words in the Bible, and it found that out of all of the words in the Bible, women speak approximately, anybody want to guess here? Approximately 1% of them, 1% of the Bible is women speaking. And while a saturation of male voices characterizes basically all ancient literature, because the ancient world was a very, very masculine place in ways we can't possibly comprehend, it can still be a little bit disappointing to learn that women make up 50% of the population and yet only speak 1% of the words in Scripture. And yet here, I think, is a little bit of silver lining. Christianity has done more to advance the dignity and equality of women than any other force in the history of the world. 
Okay? I don't have time to substantiate this enormous claim today. We'll do that in a series on down the road, but I would put my life on this. Christianity has done more to perpetuate the dignity and equality of women than any other force in the history of the world. Now, to be sure, the church has struggled with this throughout our history. Right? We've still got a very, very long way to go, but God has nevertheless used the church, us, and all of our imperfections to create cultures where the dignity and equality of women can flourish. Women may only speak 1% of the words in the Bible, but those words that they do speak and those words that have been spoken about them, especially by Jesus, by the Apostle Paul, have thundered through history and changed history. Now this is an art piece by our very own Professor Dave Hill. Dave teaches at the University of Mary Harden Baylor. This piece is on display out in the commons by the student wall for you to look at when you go out. And it is a sculpture of a woman with a bullet-riddled body. The halo over her head is, of course, meant to communicate that there's something sacred, something holy about this woman with a bullet-riddled body. Now, this piece was inspired by the story of a woman named Gail Williams. Gail was a humanitarian aid worker in Afghanistan. She served in refugee camps, mainly with children with disabilities. And on October 20th, 2008, she was walking to work when two men pulled up beside her on a motorcycle, shot her six times, and then drove off. The Taliban later claimed credit for the killing, claiming that she was killed for spreading Christianity in Afghanistan. It's 2008. And this is, of course, a tale that is as old as time, a tale found in most every culture and religion in the history of the world. And here's how it goes. See if this sounds familiar. Right, the, the gods are angry. The gods are always angry about something, you know, because the people are they're sinning too much or they're not worshiping enough or maybe the gods just woke up on the wrong side of the cloud, you know. But for whatever reason, the gods are angry and the gods are wrathful and so we're in trouble and so the only way to appease the wrath of the gods is to offer up a sacrifice. So we've got to appease the wrath of the gods by offering up a sacrifice and you know what happens next, right? The most predictable thing imaginable. We've got to offer up a sacrifice because the gods are angry, and so we start looking around for something else to sacrifice because the gods need a sacrifice, and it ain't going to be me, right? The gods need a sacrifice, and it's not going to be yours truly. So we start looking around for something we could sacrifice, that goat or that cow or that chicken or that bird or preferably that cat or that child or typically that, that woman. That's how it usually went. The story of human history is the story of people in power sacrificing others, usually vulnerable others, to preserve their power. It's the story of human history. And all this is justified, we tell ourselves, because God has really grand, important purposes for me that require the sacrifice of other less important people. Familiar story? Yeah. Gail Williams was a sacrifice offered up to the gods by violent men who thought they were serving their God. She wasn't the first, and she certainly won't be the last. Which brings us to our text for this morning. A really sad and strange story from the book of Judges. I think the saddest, strangest story in the whole Bible. Happy July the 4th weekend. Um, and before we jump in, let's set the scene. The Israelites have been led into the promised land by Joshua. And so when Joshua dies, there's this enormous leadership vacuum. 
And uh, so because the Israelites at this point are this loose collection of tribes with no clear leader, they're in a foreign land surrounded by enemies. And so they're constantly being attacked, looking for help. And God's always raising up these leaders called the judges. That's who the book of Judges are named after. Military leaders who God raises up to free Israel and fight against her enemies. And one of these judges was named Jephthah. All right, so we're going to read his story today in Judges 10. We'll pick it up in verse 17. It will be on the screen for you. Uh, if you did bring your Bible, which is always good. It is towards the front of the Old Testament, a few books in, about six, seven books in. Starting in verse 17. Then the sons of Ammon were summoned, and they camped in Gilead, and the sons of Israel gathered together and camped in Mizpah. The people, the leaders of the Gileadites, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight for us against the sons of Ammon? Because he shall become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot, son of a prostitute. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and they said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, because you're the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tav. And worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went out with him. Now it came about that after a while, when the sons of Ammon fought against Israel, when the sons of Ammon fought against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to him, Hey, come be our chief so that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. Then Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Wait a minute. Did you not hate me and drive me out from my father's house? So why have you come to me now that you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, Well, for this reason we have now returned to you, that you may go with us and fight the sons of Ammon and become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders, If you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon, and the Lord gives them up to me, will I then become your head, your king? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord is witness between us. Surely we will do as you have said. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all of his words before the Lord at Mizpah. All right, so quick recap. We, we quickly learned that Jephthah is a pretty unlikely leader. Right? He's the son of a prostitute, rejected by his own family, kicked out. He has no family. He has no claim. He has no future. So he goes out and he becomes the head of this band of outlaws, right? A violent man who's the leader of a band of violent men who rejected the society who had rejected them. And then something happens. The sons of Ammon rise up to fight against the Israelites and they reach out to Jephthah for help. They need some help to fight them. So after a little back and forth, Jephthah says, okay, I will, be, I'll, I'll go out and I'll fight for you guys. I'll bring my warriors and we'll fight for you, but only if I will then become your leader. They agree, and Jephthah becomes the head of Israel, right? And this sounds just like something. Jephthah, this man who's the son of a prostitute, kicked out of his own house, he becomes the leader of all Israel. And this sounds just like something God would do, doesn't it? God always takes the most unlikely person, the person most unfit for the job, and says, that's the guy, that's the girl, I want them, right? So it sounds just like something God would do at this point. But then, then the story starts to get a little bit more complicated. All right, we'll pick it back up in verse 29 and make sure that you listen very closely here. Judges 11, starting in verse 29. Now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, so he passed through Gilead and Manasseh. Then he passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he went on to the sons of Ammon. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand 
then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, whatever it is, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. He struck them with a very great slaughter from Aror to the entrance of Meneth, 20 cities and as far as abel Karamim. So the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. Now when Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes. And he said, Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low, for you are among those who trouble me. For I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. So she said to him, My father, you've given your word to the Lord, so do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. She said to her father, Let this one thing be done for me. Let me alone two months that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions. And he said, Go. So he sent her away for two months, and she left with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did to her according to the vow which she had made. And she'd had no relations with a man. Thus it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. So I told you it was a, a sad and strange story. You know? Maybe the saddest and strangest story in all Scripture. Let's see if we can unpack it a bit. So we're told that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah, right? This clear indication that God has chosen Jephthah to deliver the Israelites. and That's simple enough, but what happens next is very, very strange. Jephthah takes it upon himself to make this vow to God, this vow that essentially functions as a bribe. Right, Jephthah says, God, if you will give me my enemies in battle, the Ammonites, then I will give you the very first thing that walks out of my house when I return home from the battle. So Jephthah goes out to battle. God gives him the victory. And then when he returns home, the first thing out of his house is his daughter dancing celebrating her father's victory. It really is just one of the most tragic moments in all of Scripture, right? This young girl, full of life and proud of her dad, <laughs> dancing out to meet him, unaware of this terrible vow that he has made. Now, it's an awful moment that's beautifully captured by the American artist Kevin Raleigh. The music has stopped. The tambourine is still in her hand. The blood on her finger hints at what is about to happen. As Raleigh says that this is the moment she was dancing and she sees the look in her father's eyes, not knowing what's to come, but knowing everything has now gone terribly wrong. And Jephthah, Jephthah's devastated. You know, he cries out, he tears his clothes, and his grief is real, but it's also really self-absorbed. Did you notice that? Right? He says, my daughter, you have brought me low. You have become the cause of great trouble to me. Instead of saying to his daughter, I am so sorry, like, what has happened? Can I take your place? Can we do something? Instead of grieving for his daughter, Jephthah just grieves for himself. He says, I feel so bad for myself that I'm going to have to kill you. Right? 
And then let's contrast Jephthah's response with the response of his daughter. Because whereas Jephthah can only think of himself, his daughter does the exact opposite. Did you notice that? Instead of thinking of herself, she can only think of her father. She says, Father, you've made this vow to the Lord and he's given you victory, so do what you have to do. She then makes one request. She asks if she can wander the mountains for two months, grieving the shortness of her life, grieving the fact that she will die a forgotten, barren woman in the ancient world. Her request is granted and her story ends with these two simple, haunting sentences. At the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to the vow that he had made. That's one way to say it. She'd never slept with a man. So there arose an Israelite custom that for four days every year, the daughters of Israel would go out to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. So how in the world do we make sense of this story that we all wish just wasn't in the Bible, right? How in the world do we make sense of this story? Well, let's start with a question. Did God want Jephthah to sacrifice his daughter? Did God want Jephthah to sacrifice his daughter? Now, if you were paying very close attention, then you probably noticed that in this story, Jephthah does all the talking, whereas God remains completely silent. Did you notice that? Jephthah says, he's just talking away and God's not saying anything, right? God never asked Jephthah to make a vow. Jephthah just assumes God wants a vow. God doesn't accept Jephthah's bride. Jephthah just assumes that God accepts his bride. God does not tell Jephthah that he has to keep this vow that God did not ask for and sacrifice his daughter. Jephthah just assumes that God has to keep this vow God did not ask for and sacrifice his daughter. You see, from the moment we meet Jephthah, he's, he's making plans, he's bargaining, he's angling, he's taking bold action. And while God does use him, it's also very, very clear that Jephthah is using God, is it not? Jephthah's using God to ensure military victory and political power. He just assumes that God accepts all of his proposals because he thinks of himself as a very important person. And people who think they are important always tend to assume that they know what God wants, which, go figure, always seems to involve them being the center of the universe. Have you ever noticed this? And nobody ever steps in to question this self-proclaimed important man. No one ever steps in and says, hey, Jephthah, before you kill your only child, let's call a quick timeout. <laughs> Have you noticed that you're the only one talking? Have you noticed that God's not saying anything? Have you noticed that God does not appear to have shown up for this conversation you imagine yourself to be having with them? And just as an aside, this is why we all desperately need people in our lives who can call us on our self-absorbed nonsense, Right? Because if you are anything like me, you just love to make things about you. Amen? It doesn't matter what. I will find a way to make it about me. My dreams, my desires, my feelings, my pain. It doesn't matter. You could be telling me the worst story in the world. I'm like, oh, that reminds me of that time that I, right? We all do this. And so here's the thing. When you feel like God is telling you to do something that is all about you, you need some people around you to remind you that God never asked you to do something that's all about you. Do you follow? Huh? When you... Feel like God's telling you to do this thing that somehow is all about you. You need some people around you to say, no, 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 man. God never asked you to do something that's all about you and all about you sacrificing other people. And bring us back to our question, of course God doesn't want Jephthah to sacrifice his daughter. Because while human sacrifice was widely practiced in the ancient world, and it was probably even practiced by the Israelites early on, 
There are numerous Old Testament texts that tell us God doesn't want to have anything to do with human sacrifice. I'll just give you a couple of them. Jeremiah 7, verses 30 through 31. The prophet says, For the sons of Judah have done that which is evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house, which is called by my name, to defile it. They have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, and it didn't even come into my mind. Micah 6, verses 6 through 8. This one will probably be more familiar to you. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Am I going to give him burnt offerings, yearly calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present the firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now he's told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. I don't want your human sacrifices. I don't want your sons and your daughters. I want you to do justice. I want you to love kindness, and I want you to walk humbly with me. It's clear as that, and yet Jephthah does it. He kills, and he sacrifices his daughter, and nobody stands up to question him. Nobody steps in for her. And believe it or not, it gets even worse. We're going to go one level lower, right? There's one level lower in this basement, which brings us to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 11 is one of the most famous chapters in the entire Bible because it's known as the Hall of Great Faith. This collection of stories of the great men and women of the faith. Everybody who's anybody's there. You know, you got Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Sarah, and guess who else gets mentioned in Hebrews 11? Well, let's read here, verses 32 through 34. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I told you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Jephthah! Right, take a second, everybody, to just let this sink in. Jephthah! The dude who murdered his only child because of a stupid faithless, selfish, self-absorbed bribe. Jephthah is called a hero of the faith. While Jephthah's daughter, <laughs> who willingly offered herself up as a sacrifice for her father's stupid, faithless bribe, is completely forgotten. She's not even mentioned. Even the New Testament struggles to remember the story correctly. Even the New Testament is tempted to sacrifice Jephthah's daughter at the altar of Jephthah's self-importance. And so again, I ask you, what do we do with a story like this? What do we learn from it? We just pretend like it's not there? Well, when we remember the story of Jephthah's daughter, and we remember the story of someone like Gail Williams, who I mentioned earlier, we're remembering the stories of people who were quite literally killed by the sins of others. We're remembering quote-unquote unimportant people who were sacrificed for quote-unquote important people. And we remember in the hopes that we'll do better, in the hopes that we will realize that God never lets us sacrifice those the world has called unimportant and expendable. A couple months ago, uh, my wife and I, we were cleaning some things out and selling a mattress we hadn't used in a long time. And so this really young single mom showed up to buy it. She had like a newborn baby and... We're talking and helping her load it up, and then at the end of the conversation, we invite her to come to church with us here at the Vista if she didn't have a home. 
And as soon as I mention the Vista, her eyes just light up. And she says, oh, oh I, I know the Vista. My really good friend and mentor, Rachel Holman, goes there. Do you know her? And I said, yeah, I, I, I do. I know Rachel. She's actually in a small group with me. And she said, well, I had a really rough life growing up, and Rachel was always there for me to mentor me. In fact, I call her my aunt. I'm black and she's white, so she's not really my aunt, but I call her my aunt, so I, I, I picked up on that. Um, but she's like, she's like aunt, she's like a family to me. And I said, that's incredible. And she goes, and wait a minute, I think my old high school counselor also goes there. She sings on Sunday. She was standing right there a few minutes ago. Her name's Kara Young. Do you know her? And I said, yeah, I, I happen to know Kara a little bit. She's one of my really good friends. She said, well, when I was in high school, my mom kicked me out of the house and burned all my clothes. And Kara stepped in to rescue me and help me in that situation. And as she drove off, you know, with this newborn baby and mattress, Allison and I just, just looked at each other. And we had one of those nonverbal communication moments that you just have with your spouse after a while. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. This was a good one. <laughs> we just had this moment where we both realized how grateful we were to be at a church with people like Rachel Holman and Kara Young. These, these wicked, smart, strong people who are so gifted, these women who use their gifts and talents to serve those whom the world has wrongly called unimportant. Right? And so we remember these stories in the hopes that we'll do better, in the hopes that we'll be more like Rachel and Kara. But even more importantly than that, we remember these stories because they remind us that God has already done better. Okay? And this brings us back to a point that's rooted in the good news that we call the gospel. Okay? We're not hopeful because we believe that we can do better. We're hopeful because we know that God has already done better. Okay? And I say this to you all the time, but you're not here at church because you've got it together. Maybe that's what you want to tell yourself and what you want people to think, but you're not here because you got it together. You're here because you do not have it together, because you will never have it together. And no matter how together you ever get it, it is only by the grace of God. And so we're not here because we believe we can pep ourselves up and do better. No, we're here because God has already done better. Now, we remember Gail Williams, a woman shot six times by the very people she was trying to serve and love. And we remember Jephthah's daughter, a girl murdered by the very man in this world who was most supposed to protect her. And we remember in those stories that in the most important moment in the history of the world, God did not come as a king or a warrior or a president. And God did not come as a rich man, as a powerful person, as a privileged person. No, in the most important moment in the history of the world, God decided to come as a poor man, as the expendable victim, as the unimportant person who was sacrificed by all of the important people. And we can never let ourselves get over the scandal of that. And because God has done better, because God has taken up the cause of the addict, of the immigrant, of the widow, of the orphan, of any and everyone that we are tempted to dismiss and dispose of, because God has done better, we can never again tell ourselves the lie that we are more important than somebody else. We can never again tell ourselves the lie that God wants us to sacrifice somebody else at the altar of our self-importance. Now, the daughter of Jephthah, y'all, she speaks two sad, tragic sentences. And we never even get to know her name. She's forever known by the name of the man who betrayed her, Jephthah's daughter. But Jesus, Jesus has gathered up her voice and all the other lost voices of history. And because of that, he has reminded us that there are no expendable 
unimportant people. There's not a single person in the planet who is less important than you. Even more importantly than that, Jesus has reminded us that God, God does not sacrifice others in order to save himself. No, instead of sacrificing others in order to save himself, which is what we do, God sacrifices himself in order to save others. And in so doing, God undoes, unwinds, reverses the entire rhythm of the universe. And I want to end with a psalm. <clears throat> it's a psalm I came across this week, and it's a psalm that reminds us of the promises that God has made to Gail Williams, to Jephthah's daughter, and to all of the forgotten and allegedly expendable people in history. All right, psalm 113, verses 5 through 9. Who's like the Lord our God, who is enthroned on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. He raises the poor up from the dust, and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we... We pause today and, and we remember a story that we would really rather forget. We remember Jephthah's daughter and in remembering her, we remember all the forgotten, expendable, and unimportant people. And a lot of us here today have been like Jephthah's daughter. Maybe we are right now. We've been used up and then forgotten by our parents, by lovers, by friends, by coworkers. And we carry the wounds with us to this day. And then some of us have been like Jephthah. We've been so self-absorbed, so focused on our dreams, our desires, our feelings, that we've used others up and then left them behind. And most of the time, we don't mean to and we don't even know we're doing it. It just comes so naturally for us that we don't have to try to do it. And so acknowledging all of this, our hope is really not in our ability to do better, but in our sure and certain knowledge that in Jesus Christ you have already done better. In Jesus of Nazareth, you have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And we pray that you would help us today, this week, forever, to walk empowered by your Holy Spirit and not by our feeble, fickle willpower. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to give ourselves a few moments to respond now. And so if you're new, all that means is a few moments to slow down. You know, don't run. Go get your kid. Don't think about the to-do list. Be here where your feet are. Let God get beneath the surface and do the deeper work that God probably wants to do today. You can respond by standing and singing. You can respond by sitting and praying. You can respond by coming forward to receive communion. If you're a follower of Jesus, then come receive the body of Christ that was broken for you, the blood of Christ that was shed for you. This table's for you. We've got two tables in the front, two tables in the back. I believe a couple up in the right sitting. And then finally, maybe you need to respond by talking to somebody. Maybe you've got some wounds. We all have wounds. And you need someone to help you process them. We've got people by the sound booth who would love to talk to you. Respond however you want, but you will never, ever get this moment back. So take advantage of it and respond.